Amen. Thank you. Hey, kids, ages uh, three through uh, first grade, uh, as uh, Daryl mentioned, we have children's worship, and uh, Mr. J is going to be leading that this morning. What a treat. I'm half tempted, uh, but I think I'm supposed to be here, so we'll, we'll, we'll stick with this. Uh, the rest of us, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9? And we're going to read the first uh, 14 verses. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread that is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption." For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that so much that we read today is foreign to us. We haven't seen the temple, we haven't seen the tabernacle, we haven't seen the Ark of the Covenant or, or the rod which budded. We live in an age which is much more simple in its worship. And so we need you, O oh God, to give us understanding, to give us eyes to be able to see the significance of this passage as those original Hebrews who read it saw it. And grant, O God, that we may know you, the real God, and that we will rest in you. We pray for our kids. Lord, give them a great time in children's worship. Let it be a time in which they do abandon themselves to you. Change their lives and change our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if anybody else watches the show um, Kids Baking Championships. Yeah, there are a couple of us. Robin and I kind of enjoy that. Uh, it's probably a horrible thing to watch it in the evenings when I'm kind of snacky anyway. But anyway, we, we, we watch it. And we, we, one of the things I just love about it 
is the way that uh, Duff and Valerie deal with the kids. They're always kind, you know, and they have fun with them, and they point out, you know, this wasn't right, but, but you're still delightful. And, it, and it's just the, the kindness that is a part of that show I just enjoy. We recently watched an episode in which the kids were, were supposed to make a dessert that looked like a main course. Okay, you've seen some of these, uh, the, making food to look like something else. And, and so it was kind of neat. And, and one, one child uh, decided to make, they were supposed to make a steak and fries. And so they baked a cake, and they had the cake, and they covered it and decorated the cake so it looked just like a steak, just like a steak, and then uh, had uh, like some apples that they'd sliced up to look like fries, and so that was their dessert, and it was really cool. And kind of looking at that, and, 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 it, and it was interesting because you look at it, and, and you kind of see, oh, well, that's a steak and fries, but then you would taste it, if you can imagine, and no, that's, that's a cake and apples, and, and so it is, it's still real food, but it's not the real food that you thought it was, right? You, you gave you had a, a different impression of what, what it really was. And uh, uh, so I enjoy that, and I think about that when I think of um, this passage that we're looking at today. Because I think about the, the, the Jewish Christians and even their perspective of the Old Covenant. And as they looked at Old Testament worship, and, and I think it's, it was easy to forget for the Old Testament saints and for those in the, in the transition period, to forget that the worship in the Old Testament was simply an imitation of what was going on in heaven. It wasn't the actual thing, and it'd be so easy to think, well, no, this is what it really is. I think that can happen with us as well. We can begin to think, this is the real worship that we're doing, and it is real worship, but this isn't the same as the worship that we'll see in heaven. In the Sunday school class recently, uh, the teenagers and I were going through Revelation and seeing the picture of, of what was going on in, in, in the worship of God and to see you know, the, the four living creatures around the throne and the 24 elders. And then all of a sudden, they, they're, they're all worshiping and praising God. And, and then you have 10,000, 10,000 of, of angels come swooping in, singing and praising God. And then it says that everything that had life raised up to, to praise God. And so you just have this, this immensity. And, and when you look at that, you look at what we're doing and say, well, this is nice. <laughs> or as someone would say, it's cute. <laughs> and it is. We're imitating what's going on in heaven. But heaven is the real thing. And for us to, to recognize that, and, and what the author of Hebrews wanted to do in, in the life of these, these Jewish believers, is he wanted them to choose the real. To remember that, that there's something more than the imitation. And I think that's a challenge to us as well, isn't it? We need to continue to choose the real. In the Sunday school class today, uh, thanks for, for leading that, Jack, and, and just talking about suffering in this life and, and the reminder that, that this life isn't everything that there is. We want to we want to choose the real. There's something more. So how do we do that? I think to do that, the first thing we need to do is to see the significance of the shadows. To see the significance of the shadows. You know that I've, I've talked at different times about uh, the, the error of dualism that uh, Plato brought in that idea that teaches that the, the physical is evil and the spiritual is good, and it creates this, this dichotomy. And, and one of the problems with that is, what do we now do with Jesus? If the physical is, is evil, 
uh, how did Jesus as God ever become man? And so to the dualists, they, they separate that, and they would say that he didn't, and, and they would not see him as, as truly incarnate. And, and so that's one of the, the problems that came from that. And, and for us, we, we can wrestle with that, but we can also wrestle with the alter, uh, alternate, which is that we can, we can begin to prefer the physical and kind of ignore the spiritual, right? We can be so focused on the here and the now, and that's the old statement, uh, uh, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. It's the idea that, that oh no, we've got to keep our foot here. It is, it is at the basis of what took place at the beginning of the 20th century, and I think it's a little bit of a resurgence now of the social gospel, in which we begin to see the entire focus of the church at just taking care of, of, of social needs. And while that is a part of what we do, that's not the focal point. The focal point is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and to keep that as our focal point. But if, but if we're focused on and preferring the physical over the spiritual, you can see how, how leaning toward alleviating poverty becomes more important than leading people to Jesus Christ. And so we've got to guard ourselves um, so that we're able to, to recognize where we're supposed to live in a, in a uh, to be heavenly minded and to be aware of the world that is around us. The first 10 verses that we've, we've just read through really focus on the earthly worship. It doesn't discount that earthly worship. It's good earthly worship. It's worship that's, going, uh, that, that's happening, that's real, but it's not the end. There's more that he's pointing their eyes to. Remember that this is just an imitation. And so that's what he's trying to help them to see and to see the significance in that earthly worship, to remind them that this earthly worship pointed them to Jesus Christ. And so we too need to see the significance of these shadows, to see the pictures of God's promises, uh, particularly in the first five verses. In the first five verses, we have this picture of the, the tabernacle that is before us. And if we stop and look at the tabernacle, I, I love that uh, in is it, uh, verse 5, he says, we cannot speak in detail about these things. And I, I read that and I said, well, I, I, I think you just did. But anyway, um, he does describe the tabernacle for us. So I want us to, to look at the tabernacle because as the priests would go in and experience the tabernacle, they were experiencing the gospel. The gospel, the promises of God are pictured for us in these elements of uh, the, the tabernacle of the temple. And this is exactly why the author is reminding us. First of all, we go into the holy place. Now, the way that the tabernacle was, was uh, set up is that there were, or the temple, there were two rooms that were separated by a veil. And the first room that you would come from the outside and you would come into uh, the holy place. And he begins to describe the holy place. The second that had the veil separating them was the holy of holies. And that's the one that only the high priest would go into once a year. And so these are the two rooms that we're looking at. Let's look first at the, at the holy place. This is where you enter. Before you can go into the holy of holies, you have to enter into the holy place. And what do we see there? We see the lampstand. The lampstand, which would hold several candles and would provide light to the room. And uh, one commentator that I was reading was pointing out the candles and how often you can think of a candle and a candle in this room, you couldn't hardly even see it, right? We could, we could have these candles burning and you wouldn't, you wouldn't notice because there's so much light around it. But if you close everything in and you put yourself into a darkened room, suddenly a candle 
is powerful and you can begin to see amazing things with it and to have several of them that are there. But as we think about the lampstand, what is the significance of having a candle? It's that there is light. It's how we see what is reality. It provides light. And what do we know about Jesus but that he is the light of the world, is he not? He's the light that shines in every man by which we are able to know something of God, by which we are able to see who he is. And so the first thing that they would see is this lampstand and they'd be reminded that Jesus is the light of the world. And then there's the bread that he talks about. Um, having the golden, uh, sorry, the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. The sacred bread, the show bread, as some, some would call it. And immediately we think of that. And, and, and what is the show bread? It's a reminder that Jesus is the bread of life, is it not? That he's the one who provides that which we need. And that reminder continually of Jesus Christ. So before a priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, Jesus is pictured for him. But then he goes into the Holy of Holies. This is where God dwelt. This is the place where the people would know this is where God is. They would know that they weren't allowed to go into this place. It was, it was too holy for them. Only, only the high priest would go in and would go in with great fear and with terror as they would walk into this holiest place of all places, where you see what, what is there. And I think the first thing that he begins to point out of, of what is present, he says, behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. Verse 4, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. So first of all, the, you see the, the, the incense. And uh, the incense, as we see both in the book of Hebrews and then also in the book of Revelation, the incense speak of the prayers of the saints. The prayers of God are like incense going up into the nostrils of God. And so as he enters, he encounters the prayers of God's people that are going up before God. In the presence of God, God is receiving those prayers. The second thing that he sees is the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to go back and look a little bit at the, at the Hebrew words for the Ark of the Covenant because I think it's, it's, it's fascinating for us to understand um, what these words are, and I think I may have switched the order. Yeah, so to start out with, it's, it's made of acacia wood. That's the first thing. The Ark of the Covenant is made of acacia wood. We had acacia trees in, in Arizona, and uh, they, they, they have long thorns on them. And that's where the name comes from. I believe the, word, uh, the Hebrew word is satim. And satim comes from the, the Hebrew word, which is to pierce, the verb, to pierce. That's what acacia means. Now, one of the first Hebrew words that I memorized was wood, for obvious reasons. Um, and, and wood can mean a tree, right? It can mean a board. In some cases, it can mean a pastor. I thought it was hilarious, but not hilarious enough to put up there. Or it can be someone who works with wood for a living, like a carpenter. And I love, I think it was Max Lucado who recognized this and, and pointed it out first to me. So do you see that the Ark of the Covenant, upon which is the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant is made from a pierced carpenter. That isn't an accident that God chooses those words in order for us later to be able to consider the significance. I'm sure that the, the Jews didn't catch all that. There's no way. But yet God still reveals something of, of his mind in showing us that. Then we see within the Ark of the Covenant is the manna. 
The manna, which is showing God's faithfulness in providing for the people when there was no other food, and he made sure that every morning, except on the Lord's Day, every morning they would wake up and there was fresh food, bread for them to eat. Then not only the manna, but the rod that is budding, which showed God's choice of the priest, right? It was Aaron's rod that budded because God wanted to say, Aaron is my man. And it was through him that we see the priesthood coming. It's God who chose the priest. And then the tables of the covenant, which are the Ten Commandments, which were written by the very hand of God, and they were placed and saved in this Ark of the Covenant. All of this is there reminding the priest who would be in the Holy of Holies of exactly what God had done, that he was faithful in providing, he was faithful in choosing, and that he had given them his law by which they would live with him in his covenant. And then you have the mercy seat, which the, the word that's translated mercy seat here is also a word that in other places it's translated as propitiation or atoning sacrifice. It's used in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, where we read, and he himself, that is Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. That is, literally, he is the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The reminder that the mercy seat speaks of propitiation. It speaks of that sacrifice that, that pays the price and appeases the wrath of God so that it not fall upon us. This is what the high priest would see as he enters into the holy of holies. The tabernacle is filled with gospel images. The temptation of the Jews was to focus upon the Ark of the Covenant, upon the bread, upon the altar, and to miss the significance that it pictured. They would focus on the imitation and miss the reality. They would try to eat that cake as though it was a piece of steak. And they missed the reality of the stake that they desperately needed. We can miss the reality too. There's a difference between saying our prayers and praying, isn't there? We can come in and we can bow our heads during the prayer and never reach out and communicate with God. Right? We can focus on the imitation instead of the real. We can come in and we can hear the Bible read. And we can hear cool stories. And, and we can think about the, the, the neatness of the, of the, of the uh, words. Or we can phase out while it's read, too. That can happen. Maybe just me. But, 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 but it can happen. And we miss the reality. And we, get, we just see the imitation. And we miss the reality. The sermon can simply be that long filler between songs, right? Can be that which is filled with new and exciting ideas, although not necessarily always from this pulpit, but anyway, hopefully. Or are we hearing actually the Word of God declared to us in the preaching of the Word? You see, the difference is is we want to choose the real. And to do that, I need... I need to see the significance of the shadows by seeing the pictures of God's promises. And then I need to thirst for more. To thirst for more. This is a lot of what I thought of uh, for those who were in the Sunday school class this morning. And, and uh, it, was, it was interesting that 
um, they were talking about uh, being patient in suffering. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? I had no idea that's what uh, the, the class in James was going over. Um, and as I'm thinking about it here, um, because it, it really ties in with what we're looking at here. You see what God did in the curse? When man sinned, so God had put man in a good world. And by man being in a good world, it was a very good world, right? All of God's creation was good. And then man sinned in God's good world. And it, and it wasn't right anymore. And so God curses man, but in cursing man, he gives him a blessing. The first thing he says to the, the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And so all of a sudden now we know that there's going to be enmity in this world. And the man and the woman have to live life in a world that now has conflict. But the conflict exists because we are opposed to the enemy of God. And that was a good thing. God brought blessing in the curse. <coughs> he turns to the woman. And he says, the woman, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And we look at that and, and we're saddened at that. As even my, my wife declared, giving birth to our first child, this is Eve's fault. Yes, it is. But she still gets to have children. God had told her, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he's saying, you still get to do that. That isn't taken away. The blessing of God in the midst of curse. To the man, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat the bread of the land. But you see, he still gets to have bread, but it's with thorns and thistles. And oh yeah, he's going to die and return to dust, but he'll be raised again. In the midst of the curse is the blessing, because God, in his curse, did something really amazing for us. He put us in this world that can never satisfy our souls. Because it's now a sin-cursed world. And we're made for something greater than that. He puts inside every one of us a thirst for heaven. A thirst for something more than this world can ever provide for us. Philip Yancey puts it this way in his book, uh, Where is God When It Hurts? He says, pain can be seen, as Burkhauer puts it, as the great, quote, not yet of eternity. It reminds us of what we are now and fans in us a thirst for what we will someday become. I can believe with confidence that one day every bruise, every leukemia cell, every embarrassment and every hurt will be set right. And all those grim moments of hoping against hope will find their reward at last. Amen? Excuse me. Got a little excited. Because that idea is so important to us. The imperfections and inadequacies of this life lead us to something more. They make us thirst. Excuse me. Notice verse 8. The Holy Spirit is, in, is signifying this, 
that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is standing. He begins to show us that as you look at the earthly tabernacle, it reminds you that we're not there yet. The inadequacies of the earthly tabernacle show that we want something more. And it should create in us a thirst for that something more. The imperfections of our worship services should point us to something more. I think I've told the story that I was candidating at a church in Florida. Uh, and uh, during the candidating process, the, the, when you do that, the, the church, when they know you're there, the, the church is trying to do their best and the pastor is trying to do his best. And, and you know, it's kind of like a first date. You get yourself all gussied up as best you possibly can. And, and so uh, as, as we're going, uh, the uh, man playing music uh, is playing his guitar and boing, breaks a string. So he switches guitars, boing, breaks another string. Two of them in one service. He's never had that before. But you know, isn't that great? Here's the good news. You'll never break a guitar string in heaven. <laughs> That'll be nice, right? That's just, that's just, and so when things, you'll never hit a wrong note that causes problems, right? It'll, we want that. We long for that when I'll be able to sing without being repulsive to everyone around me. I look forward to that day. I really do. And that's what the inability, the inadequacies, the failures of our worship service create within us a thirst. I want something better. I want something more than we can ever find here on this earth. He says that while the outer temple is still standing, um, what it really means is the outer tabernacle still has a standing. I think it's interesting, and every commentator pointed that out, that when you really begin to understand it, that it's, it's, it's to say that when it's still significant, when it's still a part of our life, and he's saying to these Jewish Christians, if you continue to just pour yourself into that outer tabernacle, the new one isn't there for you. But you can leave that and go to the real, to the, to the outer tabernacle which is there. So then to turn to uh, verses 9 and 10, and he says, that, uh, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. He's saying in this to thirst for more. All of it's there. All of the imperfections are there to help us long for more. So the first step, if, if, if we're going to choose the real, is we need to see the significance of the shadows. And then we need to trust Christ. Surprising that I would bring that up, isn't it? Verse 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, but when Christ, but when Christ appeared as a high priest, he says, notice the shadow but trust Christ. Turn your eyes upon Christ. 
Trust is something else to, to talk about. It's a synonym of belief. But I think one of our struggles is we, we, we still struggle with positing faith in our mind. And somehow we think that if we think it, then therefore we believe it. And so we feel bad when, when it comes up that, oh, that means you didn't believe that. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, I did. I still thought that was true. Well, but belief is an act of your will, not an act of your mind. Trust is an act of your will, not an act of your mind. The, the great EE e. uh, illustration would be, you know, you, you have a chair and say, I have a chair up here and I could point out the chair and you could look at that chair and you could say, okay, so this is a chair, right? We know that's a chair. We recognize it's a chair. And we say that chair could probably hold me up, right? Probably, probably. You maybe want me to step on a scale first, but, you know, once we get all that done, yeah, it'll probably hold you up. Why isn't it holding me up? Because I'm not sitting in it, right? I'm not trusting it to hold me up at this point. I'm trusting the stage to hold me up, but I wouldn't be trusting that chair until such a time as I exercise my will and I seat myself in that chair. Each of you are trusting the chairs that you're in to hold you up. And you're not even helping them, right? I don't see any of you kind of lifting the chair at the same time you're sitting on it, right? You've put yourself completely in it, trusting it. That's trust. It's an act of your will. And so when I trust Jesus, when I trust Christ, I live as though the Word of God's statements about Christ are true. And so that's what I want us to, to look at. To, to trust that He mediates for you. <clears throat> I uh, just finished... Uh, um, a book, uh, thanks uh, Bob Steenstra for recommending it, that uh, talks about the uh, assassination of James Garfield by uh, Charles Gateau um, and, or by his doctors. There's some, 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 some uncertainty as to exactly how that worked out, but Charles Gateau is the one who shot him. And Charles Gateau, uh, after Garfield died, was, he was tried um, and uh, uh, was, was sentenced to death, was found guilty. And his sister sought to intervene on his behalf to get the, uh, not, not just a stay of execution. Because he, 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 clearly he was insane, um, but the, the nation wasn't a big fan of the insanity plea, and so he, he is sentenced to death. And his, so his sister um, goes to the point of, of writing many letters, trying to uh, get uh, them to uh, not kill her brother. And then she actually at one point travels to Ohio to Garfield's widow at her house and knocks on the door to plead for her brother's life. Now, it didn't turn out well because uh, Mrs. Garfield just would not even receive her and, and went upstairs and, and the execution went through. But I thought, isn't that interesting? She was trying to be a mediator for her brother, was she not? It's exactly what she was doing. What she needed was a mediator between her and Mrs. Garfield to be able to step in there. But she was asking Mrs. Garfield to become the mediator between the courts and her brother. The idea of a mediator is something that we see around us all the time, and we recognize the need for it in various situations. But to remember that we desperately need Jesus to be our mediator because we have offended against heaven. We stand as guilty men and women. We have indeed sinned, and we need someone to stand between us 
and God the Father Almighty. When Jesus entered, appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, as a high priest. A high priest is a mediator between the people and God. And he entered the tabernacle. But what tabernacle did Jesus enter? He did not enter into the physical tabernacle. There's no indication that he ever went into the holy place, let alone the holy of holies, because he was from the wrong tribe. But he entered into the tabernacle of heaven, to the place where we've actually sinned against. And he intercedes on our behalf. He mediates for us. He intercedes. The idea of intercession, I want us to think about for just a moment, because we, we find it tied in with uh, the priesthood and, and the, the ministry uh, in the Old Testament in, in many different places. One is uh, Numbers chapter 21 and verse 7. And you remember with Moses. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. You see, where, what, what, what's taking place here is the people came to understand their sin. God had brought discipline on them by having the fiery serpents come in, and they were, they were uh, striking people, and people were dying, and they were terrified of what was going on. And so they come to Moses, and then what do they ask Moses to do? You, Moses, you who have been appointed to this position, you who are the leader of this people, you intercede for us. And remember that Jesus was going to be a prophet like Moses, but greater. And Moses was going to intercede for the people when they had sinned. They needed Moses to stand between them and God. And so that was their request. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see another indication of this, where Samuel, in his priestly office, is called upon by the people to do, or actually is, is communicated with his sons about the need for someone to intercede. In verse 22, he says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? Now my, know, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Notice the connection between mediating and intercession. And he recognizes and he, he challenges his sons in this way. To no avail, they continue in their sin and, and uh, face greater discipline from God Almighty. But that reminder that the mediator is one who intercedes for the people. Which should, of course, turn our attention to Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Which asks the question, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That the Lord Jesus, as our high priest, is our mediator, who stands between us and God the Father, and he turns his back on us, and he lifts up his scarred hands to the Father, and he intercedes on our behalf. Will you trust Christ that this is true? Will you trust Christ and allow Jesus to be your mediator? Live as though He is your mediator between you and God the Father. Live as though He is the mediator between you 
and every other person. Live as though He is the mediator, trusting Him as your mediator, but trusting also that His blood is your salvation. We read further that He uh, entered into uh, the tabernacle not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, placed once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It's death, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. But the wages of sin is death. What do we owe for the crimes that we have committed against heaven? What do we owe for the crimes that we have committed against the covenant that God has entered into with us? What we owe is a death. A death must be given in order to pay that price. But the death of a goat or a bull is not sufficient. The death is symbolized by blood because the life is in the blood. So Jesus entered through his own blood. Just another way of saying that he died for your sins. His blood is your salvation. Will you live as though that's true? What does it mean? That means your obedience isn't your salvation, right? It means that your piety is not your salvation. It means that your love for Jesus, your attendance at church is not your salvation. Your salvation is the blood of Jesus Christ. What that means then is as I begin to understand that as I live in rebellion against God, that cost Jesus. And I begin to see the real depth of my sin. And I'm repulsed by it more than ever before. I want nothing to do with something that has brought such savagery upon my Savior. I want to turn away from that. But I also want to rest because His blood has been shed for me. It's through His blood that I have salvation. And it's through His blood that you are clean. In verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friends, I just want to ask you, is His blood sufficient? Okay, We're going to pretend like we're Baptists for just a couple minutes, okay? Is His blood sufficient? I need nothing else. Nothing else. His blood is all that is needed for my salvation. I believe that. Yes and amen. Is the Father satisfied? Amen. Is it possible that He missed even one sin? It's just not. Then the invitation to all of us is come. Come to Him now. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, maybe because you're, you're young and you're just, you're just coming to a place where you're beginning to understand all of this, recognize that you've sinned, and come to Jesus today and ask Him, Lord, forgive me for my sins because I believe that you died for them and that's all that's needed. Come today. But maybe you have been a part of the church for years and years and years and you've, you've called yourself a Christian, but you come to realize, but I haven't really trusted solely in the blood of Jesus Christ for my sin. I say to you, trust Him today. Come to Him today. Put your trust in Him that it is sufficient. It is enough. You can rest in Him. Maybe you just came to visit today 
and you wonder, why in the world would I do that? Maybe it's because God is calling you this day. and He's inviting you, come. Come today. Trust Him today. Today is the day. Put your trust in Him. Are even anybody familiar with the comedian Frank Caliendo? So mostly he, he does uh, impersonations uh, or impressions. And uh, one of his most famous is John Madden. Now pretty much everybody does a, a John Madden, at least one word, right? Bam! Right? We, we, we'll get that. But, uh, uh, but, but Frank Caliendo does a great John Madden. And so he, I like to listen to sports talk radio. So he'll be on sports talk radio shows and would, would do his John Madden. And, and it sounds really, really good, I think, and, until if you can imagine what it would have been like if he's doing his John Madden and John Madden walks in, right? <laughs> All of a sudden it's like, oh, <laughs> there, there is a difference in the way that they sound. And I'm sure it would be hard for John Madden because he might want to try to sound like Frank Caliando being John Madden. But anyway, that would be a, a difficult time. And, and that's all fun until now let's start talking about football with these two men, right? I want Frank Caliendo to begin to explain to me about football, and I want John Madden to explain to me about football. Which one are you going to choose? Right? Let's lose the comedian. Let's choose the real. We want the real one. Because the other one is just an imitation. Tabernacle worship simply imitates heaven. Our worship simply imitates heaven. Let's always reach for the real, to choose the real, to see the significance of the shadows, and in the midst of it all, to put our trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. I just thank you for the way that your spirit works in our lives. You continually draw us closer to you. You continually remind us of your great love. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to trust. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.